Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's Roxanne Durhaj of Authentic Living with Roxanne. And today I have a special guest, Mohammed Anwar. And um, Mohammed has been in business for quite a while. He's a young guy, but I think, uh, you know, did you start business in grade school there, Mohammed? You started so young. <laughs> yeah, I started uh, my business when I was 20 years old, still pursuing my computer science degree uh, at uh, University of Houston. So I was in my uh, junior, senior year when I started. My goodness. So you started right out the gate. Yes. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about Mohammed and uh, his bio will be, you know, in the show notes, but um, he has a pretty fascinating story. And we both um, uh, crossed paths at the Forbes Executive Business Council. But what he talks about, which is that I think it's, you know, when I think of the word love, so I'm a, you know, my background is a psychotherapist, Mohammed. people yes. cringe in business generally. They go, well, what is what does love have to do with a boardroom? And, uh, you know, so I'm, I love um, your new book and the title because it's love as a business strategy, because I would think you must get polar opposite um, potentially uh, reactions to the title of your book, like, wow, or oh, whoa. Yes. <laughs> I've been told uh, both. I've actually been told that, hey, your title's really cheesy, but the content of the book is amazing and very practical. And then some other people are like, wow, that's a very intriguing title. I'd love to learn more about this. So I've got mixed reactions from the title, but I guess that's the intent is create a title that is uh, provocative, but <laughs> and I guess stokes different types of feelings. And hopefully that's what gets people to you know, be curious about the book either way. Absolutely. So Mohammed has a pretty interesting story starting obviously as um, an entrepreneur and he was a C is the CEO of software. And I want him to tell his story because I think, I think it's quite fascinating and how now he is into uh, building uh, corporate cultures with the, with the philosophy of love as the foundational element. So Mohammed, tell us a little bit about how you started your first business and um, kind of what got you on the path uh, to love as a business strategy. Sure. Um, so as we spoke earlier, I started the business when I was 20 years old, still in college, pursuing my computer science degree. And it was a technology business uh, that we started. And I, I started this with my family, with my brother, um, actually. And so... This is my first time having a real job and I work for myself. I don't have any bosses. I don't have anybody to really look up to and I have to figure things out on my own. So I looked to the corporate world that I interacted with um, and the leaders from the corporate world to model my leadership style, my behaviors and, and you know what I thought was the most apt way to bring about success uh, for my business. And I did that. And I did that for over 10 years of running this business. And 
I had hit the pinnacle of success. I was running a company with more than 300 employees in less than 10 years. And we were, you know, making revenues that was very formidable. And I was driving my fancy cars, flying my planes and leading the uh, entrepreneur life and the perks that come by the way of it. And you could almost say I was living the American dream, especially as an immigrant to this country. And I thought I had figured it all out. And by the age of 30, I was like, you know, super, I thought to myself, I was super successful. But then 2015 hit, which is about 12 years after we started the business. And uh, we were on the verge of bankruptcy. We were in deep trouble financially and struggling to survive. I had to make a decision to lay off over 100 employees for the first time in the history of 12 years of running my business. And I did so, I made the decision to do it. And I did so in a very inhumane manner. And at that moment in time, I became quite introspective to kind of figure out why had this happened? Because up until that point in time, I blamed everything, every part other than myself or any of my decisions as to why we were in this situation. But in a moment of deep introspection, I recognized that actually this was my fault. My selfish attitude, my behaviors had led to almost the demise of our company. It wasn't anything other than how I was leading the company and the culture I had set, which uh, I had created a very toxic environment because of my selfish behaviors. And I had set the tone for other leaders to follow me. And that almost led us to destroying the very business that I had worked so hard to build with my team. So in that realization I had, I recognized that I was a bad boss and uh, a terrible CEO and that I needed to change. And so I began on this journey of trying to figure out how do I fix my business and uh, uh, interesting story, I ended up going to a football game for my alma mater two weeks after the layoffs. And I was watching this football game and we were losing by 20 points. This is American football, by the way, a college football. And in the fourth quarter, we were losing by over 20 points, which is like losing 4-0 in soccer or the real football. And with 15 minutes left in the second half, that's how bad the situation is. But somehow, miraculously, the team ended up winning that night by a point. And uh, that was very unlikely. And that comeback rejuvenated me, made me super excited. And I started to see Softway through the eyes of that uh, football team. And I envisioned our own fourth quarter financial comeback in 2015. And so I went back to the house that evening. And on Monday morning, I was ready to go fight. I wasn't going to give up. I was going to fight for our team, fight for our company to stay alive. But I was so inspired by that win that I wanted to hear what the coach had had to say about that victory that night. And in that press conference, when the reporters asked him what had led to their success and resilience and comeback, he said he attributed it all to the culture of love that that football team had the love and support that each of that football players had for one another. And he said, this wasn't your artificial love you broke kind of love. This was a genuine love where you have the other person's heart in your hand type of love. Because when you have that kind of a culture, 
people go out on the field not to fight for themselves, but fight for the others who are around them. Mm-hmm. They put their needs of others before their own. And that's what makes championship level teams. It's not about championship teams are not made up of all-star players. It is players who care and love one another to make an all-star team. And so culture of love was what attributed to that team success. So hearing this, I was like, holy crap, I, I need to figure out that how can I love my team? Because I obviously was very selfish and I was greedy. Greed was my business strategy back then. And so I needed to find a way to love our team and create that culture because I really wanted to save Softway. And that's how I kind of encountered culture of love. But no one talks about culture of love at the workplace. Everyone talks about sports analogies. They'll be like, hey, you play defense, I'll play offense or I'll play quarterback. But no one talks about the culture of sports teams inside of the workplace. So I decided that I want to try that out for our own company. And I began on this journey of creating a culture of love, but I recognized that for us to create the culture of love, I needed to first change my behaviors as the leader of the organization. And so I began on a journey of becoming a reliable leader. And only when I was able to walk the, you know, walk the talk, would I talk the walk was my mindset. So I worked on myself. I did anything and everything to serve our team and be selfless. And as a result, our people saw the genuine love and care I was trying to put into the business and with them, that they eventually began to follow and go through their own transformation of serving others. And as a result, our company not only survived, but we thrived. And in three years, we had tripled our revenues, increased our EBITDA or profit by 48% differential, reduced our attrition from 30% to 12%. And soon our customers were knocking on our door saying, hey, uh, we want that for ourselves. And soon a technology digital transformation company is now here offering culture transformation services for our customers. And that's when we found our new calling and our new purpose, which was uh, bring back humanity to the workplace. So today we are a tech company focused on transforming workplace cultures. And we do that through technology and facilitated experiences. So that's kind of a story in a nutshell, how I encountered this whole culture of love, philosophy and concept. So I'm going to say, you know, because you know, I talk about authentic heart leadership and hence why we had this, this synergies when we um, met on Forbes. You know, I, I come from the space that I honestly truly believe that that is the basis. Like if we're able as leaders to really connect within ourselves. And I, I come from, in my new book that's going to be released in a couple months, I talk about, I look at it because you know my background is I'm a psychotherapist. I looked at it as having the leader understand his leadership, his leadership story or his legacy or her legacy. And, but going back even further, because, you know, if you can understand, and I'm sure you've probably come across this, but attachment styles, if a leader is inherently able to understand his attachment style, like you said, previously, you kind of went and you went, you know, you went for the goal, you didn't think of other people, um, which made it one pointed, but from a, a securely attachment style of leadership, which is where it sounds like you made the shift, what you did in ter- fact, you, you thought, okay, what is it that I need to be secure within myself? And then in turn, from an attachment perspective, 
the, the concentric circus, circles around you kind of start to adapt to the space that you were, how you were shifting your behavior. Is that what you did? It sounds like it. So I, you know, like I said, like I was just in a position to try and do whatever I can to change the situation. And those layoffs had really affected me. And um, I, I just wanted a better environment and do the right thing um, and do so consistently. And that's where I started my goal. And I guess that resulted in the transformation. To be honest, I didn't do it with this intent of becoming a culture services company or not. I just did it because the situation warranted me to do something. And I guess looking at it retrospectively, what you're saying makes complete sense that maybe that's what transpired. It's looking at it from the same angle, because if I'm a disconnected leader, and like you said, I'm looking at my profits, having to report to my boards, um, look at my at my shareholders, and I'm, I'm realizing that I'm really off track, like you said, that you were in 2015. And then in one quarter, right, you're able to, to, you know, triple your profits, you know, your attrition rate goes up from 30 to 12%. That's significant, right? So tell us about love as a strategy. So Sure. internally, you did certain things as a leader. And I often talk about that leaders have to understand their internal world. They have to understand their stress signature. They have to understand what are the core fundamental values that made them want to get into leadership. And if they haven't gone there to explore those things, so that opens up the vein for them to be able to lead others. So tell me about um, the core concepts in the book and what you learned about yourself that allowed you to create that shift around you. Sure. So first of all, love as a business strategy, a simple definition is basically where you make all business decisions by keeping people at the center of those decisions, your team. You know, many organizations will prioritize shareholders or customers first in their paradigm of a priority in the pyramid. But um, love as a business strategy is where people are at the top of your priority list. So you build all your strategy around people, then you prioritize customers, then you prioritize shareholders. Because if you take care of your employees and do everything that's right for them, they are your best assets. They take care of your customers. And when you take care of customers, they make sure they do business with you. And then that in turn makes sure shareholders are happy. So love as a business strategy is basically putting humans at the center of all your business strategic decisions and strategic plans. That's the simple definition. Um, so in terms of, you know, um, how uh, we went about, you know, incorporating this in our business was to be able to always think from the people's lens, whether it was HR, whether it was our, uh, you know, budgets for food, budgets for travel, you know, anything and everything that we would generally first cut corners on when it comes to mm -hmm. tough financial times, um, we decided to prioritize our people. So, you know, an example, I'll give you like a story, right? So I travel to India quite a bit because I have a branch office in India, in Bangalore, uh, you know, technology company, we have our Houston office and our Bangalore office. And I traveled four to five times a year. And those trips are quite long. So I would travel business class and in doing so at times I would take my coworkers with me, um, directors or project managers on some of these trips. The only difference is I would have them fly back in economy class 
while I flew up in business class. And I felt guilty in the moment, but I also justified to myself, hey, I'm the leader, I'm the president. I get to fly business class because I deserve it. And as far as the rest of the team, they're just lucky to be going to India. I was pretty mm -hmm. ruthless. And they would, in fact, walk the walk of shame through business class while I sat in my seat and they went in the back. And so I had a lot of guilt, but I still did it because that's what I thought leaders of corporate worlds do. But then I recognized that that wasn't right. So when our company was in financial uh, predicament, I decided I'm going to fly economy class in the back of the plane with my team. And those are probably uncomfortable journeys, but they were the best journeys I've ever had because I had mm -hmm. so much fun, got to know our team, and we just had a lot of fun traveling to India together. And then when our financial situation started to pick up, we decided I had to change the policy. So now our policy is everyone flies business class, whether you go from Houston to India or India to Houston. And, and from that, so you see, so, so now our business strategy and decision on expenses and travel budgets is now prioritized around your people. And people respect that. They appreciate it. They, they know how much mm -hmm. it costs. And when they see the companies investing in them, I mean, they're going to go above and beyond to make sure those trips that we have to India are going to be the most productive, the most effective, because they know the company's taking care of them. And so little things like that, they make a difference. I mean, in the budget wise, you might be like, oh my gosh, that's like a big expense. But in the grand scheme of things with the ROI you can get when you prioritize your, your teams is it's a drop in the bucket. Um, so those are some examples that we did. And we also made, you know, a lot of other changes in a recruitment approach, onboarding approach, um, how we prioritize food budgets, um, how we approached uh, performance uh, appraisals and performance reviews, um, down to how we worked in meetings with each other, how we made space for the people at the table who weren't usually given a space, how do we create psychological safe environments? How do we respect each other? How do we mm -hmm. make sure we're able to have crucial conversations, difficult conversations without you know, fear of being not liked, but instead we call it tough love and we're able to get through difficult conversations without fear of you know, hurting someone because we know when we love each other, we are doing it in the interest of, each other and our, our business. So people don't take it offensively when we give feedback and when we have those crucial conversations. So like all of a sudden our behavior started to change and um, we believe behaviors is the foundation of building the right processes and procedures. So if you have the wrong behaviors, wrong mindsets, you will see that reflected in your processes, procedures, and systems. So that's kind of the, the journey. And we, we, we say behaviors are the bottom line. If culture eats strategy for breakfast, like Peter Drucker says, then behaviors eat culture for lunch. That's our philosophy. I like that. Now, yes. let's talk about some of the practical things, right? So you were, like you said, you had to make the shift. But trust had to have been impaired at the time you were making that shift. So I'm going to be, I'm going to play devil's advocate in a, for a second. I'm saying, here, Miss, here's Mr. CEO. I don't know if I like you. And now we have the CEO that's coming from a place of love. 
I think people are going to go, well, that's a nice thing there, Mohammed, but I don't know if I'm going to get on board. What kind of dissension did you deal with and how, how did you approach that? And I'm, obviously this is what you do now with culture, but I, I'm curious because I know I've been in those situations over and over again where everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You want me to tell you what I really think? And then where's yeah. that information going to go? And is it going to show up in my performance evaluation or am I not going to get that major project? So what kind of things did you deal with? Sure. So first of all, when I watched that football game that weekend, the following Friday, I had a whole company stand up with 200 plus employees. And I made an open declaration that I, where I said, hey, we need to love one another and support one another because I, you know, I was so inspired that I wanted to make that declaration. And when I did that, people were like, this is what they told me afterwards when they were comfortable to tell me this. They were apparently initially they were like, okay, that sounds interesting, but this looks like it's the flavor of the month. And, you know, we'll see what we see. We'll see if you get, you will really act on it. And that was their skeptical approach because I had obviously not had a good track record up until that point in time. So they didn't want to believe that this, this change or this commitment to change was going to be real. Um, but after that, like I, I continued to stay steadfast on my commitment and took actionable steps, um, tried to do whatever little things I could do to show my genuine effort in building a culture of love by first working on myself. I didn't mm -hmm. hold anybody else accountable but myself. Um, and through that journey, I think people started to see that, okay, this is not the flavor of the month and that there is some real effort happening. Um, like little examples, just to give you, I vacated my executive office. That was the largest office in her office space. And I moved out into the bullpen area with the rest of the team. Mm -hmm. And initially they thought I was there to monitor them and micromanage them. But ultimately they realized I was there to serve them because mm -hmm. I believe that I need to put their needs before mine. And this open door policy isn't really a real thing because if you're a leader, you should be going where the team is not asking them to come make the walk to your office. So I decided to be with them in the bullpen area. I started to come to the office first before anybody else showed up and I would be the last person to leave the office. I wouldn't go till the last person had left. And many a times when people would stay late uh, for work, I'd make sure to go pick up dinner for them so they didn't have to go home and have to prepare a meal. I started to write thank you notes to our teams. I had never done so in 12 to 13 years of running my business. And when I did that, I also included gift cards to the movies or dinner to show my token of appreciation, not just to the employees, but the family members and the spouses and the loved ones, because they too were sacrificing um, their time away from their loved one for them to be at Softway. So I wanted to show my token of appreciation there. Then I started to um, make sure I do, there, there was no task beneath me. I started to do anything and everything I would generally delegate, whether that meant um, picking up trash or serving food to the team when we had potlucks, um, down to even making sure that I would not ask anybody to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. So I tried mm -hmm. to play the roles of a project manager, salesperson, <laughs> anything and everything I could do to be beside my team in the trenches 
So I began to do a lot of those type of little things. I also did some um, things that I didn't disclose at the time. Um, I sold my house that was fully paid out to put money back into the company to make payroll. I sold a, a fancy car that I should have never had to begin with and put the money back into the company. And I didn't take a paycheck for eight months in all of 2016 because I wanted mm. to make sure our team would receive paychecks before mine. But all of these things were done without disclosure because I didn't believe that I needed to show it off at the time. But it was the, that things had least impact on, on our team. Yes, they did notice all of a sudden I was not driving a Porsche and I was driving a minivan. But <laughs> at the same time, I, um, I don't think those things mattered as much. What mattered was the little things that I did, the little things I took to write a thank you note, the things that I did to be there with the team or help them on a project. Those acts of servitude is what I think made the difference. Um, and, and I think from there, like everybody who had doubted or had skeptical response to my initial declaration saw that there was a genuine um, effort. We've had such a great conversation that we decided to do two parts. We're going to do part one, which after finishing up, we recognized there was so much more that we needed to talk about. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxannederhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.